to another interesting week. And two acquittals this week. Well earned. Yeah. Um, what are we talking about now? Well, a case came out from the Ontario Court of Appeal that I was actually kind of excited. And it's very rare with appeals that I get excited because, <laughs> you know, they're usually just depressing. But um, but I actually, you know, think this one's, you know, really important because it, it has to do with um, the quality of evidence from child witnesses. Yeah. So what's identify the case so people can know in the citation. So this, this case is RVDD. It's 2022, Ontario Court of Appeal, number 786. Right on. And uh, so it just came out like, a, I don't know, about a week ago. And um, so the first thing to explain is that, um, you know, there are a lot of historic allegations. There's no time limit in terms of, you know, when people report an allegation. It could be from, as a case we're going to talk about, allegations yeah. from the 70s and 80s, right? But Yeah, so historical sexual assault allegations can come from last week. Last month, last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 40 years ago, or even more. There's no limitation. Or it can also be a, a fairly you know, current one where the, the witness is still a child and they're not an adult testifying about something that happened to them as a child. So one of the things that uh, people don't understand, because children used to not just simply not be believed, you know, children make things up. Yeah, so break that down for a moment. So in the, in, in the long past, when children would come forward with allegations as children about sexual abuse, uh, there were difficulties within the court system of accepting their evidence because they were children. Mm -hmm. And then we had an evolution of legal principles and law, how we deal with that, because that's not correct. It's, a, it's an unfair way of dealing with children's allegations because abuse can continue if we don't accept their evidence. But there's an interesting thing that came about as a result of that, and that's that when a child testifies, they're not going to have the same language abilities. Um, they're not going to have the same perception of the world around them that you would expect in terms Memory. of details. Um, they might not remember, in one case, the layout of the house or, um, you know, they, they forget which school they were going to or yeah. they, they get mixed up about things because they're yay high, right? And everybody around them is a giant and they, they just perceive things in a different way. Right. So, so what's interesting about this is, so if there is a, an allegation from a child, there are different principles at play with respect to their evidence about how it's reliable and credible. And there's allowances within the criminal justice trial process about how we assess their memory, uh, their perception of events, their perception of time, and how we perceive their ability to describe evidence. So when there's something that normally we'd think was an inconsistency with an adult, with a child that may not be material or relevant. And there's good reason for that. And we need to protect children from abuse. So that's a very healthy principle, but it can have mischief when there's a historical allegation from somebody who's now an adult. So 20, 30 years later, they come forward with an allegation as to when they were a child. Hence well, this case. And, and also I, I have before tried to explain this to people who are going into a case where there is a child um, complainant that um, is, it almost seems like a, a discount in their testimony that they get. And explain that a little so, bit because this is good. We talked about this briefly, but... Inconsistencies are sort of like the meat of cross-examination to catch somebody in inconsistencies and in previous statements and so on. But with children, those inconsistencies aren't going to be considered to be as relevant. Let's give an example. So let's say a child gives a statement to police and says, I remember this happening when I was not in school. 
Mm -hmm. So we know you're not in school over the summertime. And then at trial, their cross-examined said, it happened near Christmas. How relevant is that? Well, you know, if you have a, a time frame that you're being accused and you can show that you weren't even in the country, let's say, <clears throat> then it's obviously, it's pretty good evidence for the defense. But all of a sudden the time frame can completely change to a different season, a different year. But how does the court perceive this inconsistency? So you've got a child, let's say seven, eight, nine years of age. Mm -hmm. And in their statement, as I've said, they said this happened during the summer when I wasn't in school. But then at trial, they're saying, well, you know, it happened during Christmas. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's a material inconsistency that a court would discount their evidence? No, it isn't because no. time is fluid and they're not expected to have the, a robust memory in the same way an adult would. Excellent point. Pause. Repeat that again. Their memories are not expected to be robust and they're not expected to be able to describe details in the same way that you would expect of an adult. So there's a tremendous amount of latitude to a child complainant when it comes to timing, perception, and even facts about the actual allegations, mm -hmm. as long as their core evidence about what happened to them is intact. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing to understand because from a prosecutorial standpoint, that would enable you know prosecutors to obtain a conviction but from a de defense standpoint it could be so amorphous at what, at what point are you <clears throat> at, at what point right. are you not maintaining the reasonable doubt standard is the question and i find it actually i understand you know because it is important to protect children why these things came about right. but but to me you know it just seems really, really difficult to maintain a reasonable doubt when you're giving so much leeway to the quality of the evidence. And an interesting thing with children too is that um, in order, they don't give oaths to tell the truth very often. They're usually just asked to explain whether or not they can understand the difference between a truth, the truth and a lie. Right. So if I said I was wearing a pink suit right now, would that be true or false? That would be false. <laughs> okay, you can testify. Right. That's essentially all it takes. But you know what? The reality is of an oath on a Bible. Nobody gives a shit about that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that's so passe. Like, give me a break. Yeah. Well, and in Canada... The I, faith in an oath is nobody like can even remember, a fallacy. Nobody can even remember the last time somebody was prosecuted for perjury in Canada, I think. <laughs> but, so, there's a number of things that... Yeah. that and I we can swear on. You can swear on a Bible... You can swear on the Quran, you can swear on the First Testament, the Second Testament, the f***ing, I don't know what, the Moon Bible, or a Psalm affirmation, none of which in my respect. I'm a Jedi. Yeah, or a Jedi. What, what, what can I say? None of which in my respectful <laughs> opinion bounds anybody's truth. Actually, you know that was the thing in Canada when they, they tried to make Jedi a religion that you could... Did they really? Yeah, and I, I actually joined. I'm a Jedi. I'm not making it up. <laughs> Are you reading my mind now? <laughs> I wouldn't tell you if I could. Give me that glass of scotch. <laughs> so, so one of the things, uh, you know, and these allegations are, are very serious. And one of the things that happens with um, child complainants quite often is that uh, these complaints are made in the midst of a, a really bad separation that has custody disputes going on and so on. So um, there's two things that are considered to be myths that become very dangerous when you're dealing with these cases and suggesting motive and so on. One is um, the timing of the complaint. You have to be very, very clear if what you're saying is this was timed right around a court action 
and make it very clear that you're not saying if she was telling the truth or he was telling the truth, they would have said it earlier because... Yeah, so let's break doctrine, that out. It's called the doctrine of recent complaint. Right. So, you know, so if a, a child complainant, for example, says something a year later, you know, it's no longer, and it should not be really a, a line of attack to say, you should have said it at the earliest opportunity. Because children, as well as adults, may not come out with allegations at the time that it happens for a host of emotional and psychological reasons. That said, when you're in a high-conflict divorce and a child comes out with an allegation of sexual abuse during the course of a custody dispute, well, timing might be really relevant. Yeah. And it's not the timing necessarily of the child itself, but it's the, the complaint in relation to what's going on in the family law action. So to ground this for our understanding, we have a case that's going to be litigated soon where a complaint came out about a, three weeks before a motion by the mother to restrict all access to the child in question. And a child who was alienated from our client who didn't want the father to know anything about her activities in school, came out with this complaint three weeks prior to the motion, right at the time that the mother was making or drafting an affidavit in the family court proceedings about why the father should just not be involved and is a horrible human being, blah, blah, blah. That is very, very suspicious. That's what you're talking about. Have I got that right, Diana? Correct, yeah. And you have to be really clear in your arguments that you're not saying... Uh, a real victim would have reported earlier, and a real complainant. Yeah, well, I know saying, they call them a victim. You know, they they call them real victims. Hate that term. But um, so then the other myth that can come up uh, fairly often, and you have to be really careful about this, is saying that a true victim would have behaved in a certain way. So, right. so in the defense, they may say, and, and we see this all the time. I've got like a hundred pictures of us all on vacation, and she's super happy. I've got, right. you know, or he, and uh, and so they have all these photos saying, you know. We had a great relationship. This is only relevant if the complainant says something about having tried to distance themselves and never enjoying being around the person. Then it becomes relevant. But you can't argue that um, that a child wouldn't appear happy in a photograph if they'd actually been sexually assaulted in some way. Okay, so this is a really great point that you make. And this is really uh, informative to people who come to us as 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 clients. So they think that if, if in the course of a high-conflict divorce, a child or children have made allegations that, you know, 50 pictures of them having a great time at Canada's Wonderland and on vacation in, in uh, Bermuda. I only say that because I just looked up Bermuda recently and they have a temperate climate, even though they're like at the Carolinas. Um, and uh, other things that all these pictures would show that I never abused them. Mm-hmm. And it's a British colony and it has really apparently pink beaches. But leaving that aside... You know, that's not evidence of anything. Right. Because a person or a child can still be abused and pose in pictures like, I'm happy. Trying to normalize the normalize situation. Normalize the situation. Yeah. And in fact, a child may have abuse, but still enjoy going to Canada's Wonderland, may enjoy going to Disney World, may enjoy going to a restaurant, may enjoy being with family at a party. So that is not really supportive evidence. And that's something we need to educate our viewers and, and potential clients on it may be helpful, but it may not be. Mm-hmm. It, it's more relevant if the if, if the complainant makes statements about having intentionally tried to distance themselves or change the relationship, or that they they were never happy. It was like really because now I have all these photos of you. 
and it becomes relevant if they misrepresent what was going on at the time. Excellent point. So let's talk about the narrative of the complainant. So let's say the child in a high conflict divorce says in the statement, since the divorce, I never wanted anything to do with my father, for example. I hated going over to his house. I was never happy. Life sucked. I never wanted anything to do with him. I couldn't smile. Then the father, this is actually, I'm, I'm quoting from a case I had. And then the father has like a thousand pictures since the divorce of the child smiling with all and sorts engaging of and engaging awesome, like awesome things like great shit. like like god bless this father who i had as a client like he was such an engaged parent and he loved taking pictures and videos simply because he loved his children and it's smiling and involved and integrated and it's not just standing in front of like i don't know ubu at you know Kaz Wonderland, I don't know who's at Kaz Wonderland. Like I haven't been there in ages. Like like Nickelodeon, whatever it is. It's only Nickelodeon you know, characters. Yeah. A Nickelodeon character, but it was like doing simple activities, and they're smiling and they're hugging and they're kissing and everything is great, you know, and fun stuff, and with the family pet. That was compelling evidence because that was after when she said she hated everything to do with her father. That's when it's relevant. Do you know one of the things, because I read a lot of uh, appeals uh, all the time, trying to keep up on the, the latest stuff. And You know why I let you read the appeals and I don't? Because they're uh, angering. Because <laughs> I go crazy when I read them. Yeah, one, one of the things that I see, especially with um, child complainants, is that a large number of people in a living situation where they're sharing a home with this yeah. child, try to say there was never an opportunity for them to be alone with the child. And it almost, it's almost never true. I mean, it's like- Okay, you gotta explain this yeah. slowly for everybody to understand because this is a really important point. And we see this playing out and it, it was in some of the appeal decisions we've read. Please explain it slowly so everybody gets it and then we can, I can comment on it. So, I mean- Great the, point. I think is again, another, it's a case of needing to be very specific about what you're claiming and, and not try to make broad sweeping statements. So right. when somebody tries to say when they're living in a home and sharing a home with a child that there was never an opportunity for them to be alone, very few people are going to believe that because it's life, right? I've got bowling every day and every night. I've got a bowling bag to prove it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so the... You know, it's important to make it clear when what you're trying to say is, is, let's say it's a busy household, right? So you're not saying that I was never alone with them, but potentially what you're saying is there was never a time where I could have been sure not to be interrupted, right? That Look, would be it, one it argument just, too. It's nonsense. But, it, so I'm going to climb back from my stupidity when I was giving that. You know, the reality is if you're in that situation, there will always be times that you could be alone yeah. with the complainant. And to say that there's never an opportunity is counterintuitive and frankly, not helpful to a defense position. It's far more beneficial to say, no, I was alone many times, but I didn't do this. than saying there was never an opportunity. And it's amazing how many times this arises with people who come to us, even though they're innocent. Okay. And we know the allegation is bullshit, but you know, they're trying to say, no, 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 I never had the opportunity. And we're like, dude, like, come on. There has to have been an opportunity. And that's just not a path you want to go down. We have to be, you know, what we have to do is we have to remember that when somebody's charged with an offense, it's important to be grounded, okay? Life is the way it is. 
And to try and skew it some other way won't help your defense lawyer, whoever it is, and it won't help your defense at trial. Just as hard as it is, try and remain calm and talk to your lawyer honestly, because we know what life is like, yeah. right? And it factors in the case law. And if you say things that aren't believable, you're not going to be believed. Correct. Now, this case, this is interesting because this is where um, it was the complaint was his... Snuffleupagus did it. Um, well, that's almost like the Waterman case. So we do you were remember Snuffleupagus? Of course I do. Right. I just want to double check. It's one of the best characters. Um, so, I uh, never met Snuffleupagus. <laughs> so in this case, the DD case that we mentioned earlier, this was a historic allegation where the complainant is testifying as an adult. Of what? So she's testifying to uh, events that she claims took place when she was a child, but she's now testifying and making the complaint as an adult. Great. And so the um, the case law on how to treat uh, child witnesses, and I think this is a good thing to read out. Slowly. It comes, yeah, because I'll give a citation. It comes from RVW brackets, R... <laughs> 1992 from Supreme Court. And uh, so the, the quote from that case that they referenced in, in here is, since children may experience the world differently from adults, it is hardly surprising that details important to adults, like time and place, may be missing from their recollection. So the trial judge in this case referred to the, the, the seminal, the, you know, the, the case law on that issue. But then... The, in this case, they reversed the conviction because he then went and treated the testimony of the adult as if there was wording that you would expect to hear from a child. Pause. Get that? It's a little bit complicated. So. But it's really important. Repeat yeah. it again. So the language, and I'll, I'll give some examples that, the, that they gave. So um, just frame it again. Framing. That... If it was, this was an adult yeah, testifying was, about allegations when they were a child. Yeah. Okay? And they used language as if they were a child. Go ahead. So they give like a four example, five examples actually, and uh, that was just some of them. Um, there, were, there were more examples in the case. But if it was a child who was actually still a child testifying, you would expect to hear them use simple, naive language. Right. Good point. And in this case... The judge found that the simple, naive language being used by the adult complainant was consistent with what you would expect to hear from a child. But of course, she's now testifying about, as an adult, about things with a better language skill that you would expect, you know, could be articulated better. So that's the, kind of like the, the discount doesn't apply anymore. <laughs> it's an excellent point. Said slowly again. That, this is important the, to instruct people. Yeah, the discount that you would give to a child complainant or child witness does not apply anymore when the person's an actual adult with proper access to language skills that you wouldn't expect to hear them speak in this vague terms that that a child would. Excellent. That's correct. So, um This is a great case that way. One of the things that is that the complainant testified that DD would take photographs. The trial judge said, "Quote it just seems so out of sync with the, a child's story unless it was a detail that the child remembered. With respect, the judge was not hearing a child's story. It was hearing what? Hearing an adult testifying about recollections that have apparently been going through the adult's mind for long enough that they're sorting out what to do with these memories and, and so sorting it can out be, what they it mean. It can be absolutely 
confabulated, misconstrued, all sorts of things can happen. And this is the problem with historical allegations. So when you're dealing with an adult complainant from allegations from 10, 20, or 30 years prior, you can have such a level of distortion and then impact on reliability that it should never lead to a conviction. And that's the danger. So we can't treat an adult's evidence about allegations as a child in the same way we deal with a child testifying. And that was this case, and it's a very good case to say, you know, you don't give the discount anymore mm -hmm. because this is an adult testifying. And that's incredibly important, and we got to get that across. So one of the concerns, and, and we've talked a little bit about this before yeah, in great. a previous podcast, but, um, you know, one of the concerns with historic allegations is uh, the multitude of ways in which people can come to have false memories. So one of those things is like recovered memories. There's been a, you know, a lot of talk around the historic 1980s, I believe, satanic panic, where all of a sudden all these children were remembering ritual satanic abuse, which most of it was shown to not have actually happened, but they believed it happened. And mm -hmm. there's things that happen that, that lead people to have these false memories, which you know, is, is part of uh, how they've tried to reform, you know, techniques of interviewing. Yeah. Um, there's a great book by, uh, there's, there's a couple of people who are leading the field in, in dealing with false memories. Mark Pendergrass has got this book, The Memory Warp. This is a fairly recent one. Great book. And, and so one of the things that's become apparent is that all of these false memories just keep getting repackaged into new forms of therapy. And it's just, it just doesn't seem to die. <laughs> That just 2021 Supreme Court of Canada case about a false, about memory through a therapist. What was that case? We just read it today. So it's this, awful. this case actually was really concerning for me. And it was in 2021. Supreme Court confirmed or actually overturned the uh, Court of Appeal decision. Court of Appeal in, Nova, I think it was Nova Scotia. No, Newfoundland. Newfoundland? Okay. The Nova Scotia Newfoundland. would be smarter. Yeah. So, okay. So it's called Waterman. Time out. Waterman. Newfoundland Court of Appeal overturned a trial conviction, went to Supreme Court of Canada, and they restored the conviction. And this is f***ing nuts. Yeah. Lay it out, because it's like, it's the, so stupid, so the main I ground, need a drink. Yeah. The, it was really disturbing. So the main ground of appeal... Like, super disturbing. Yeah. And I can't believe we missed this for a newsletter, but holy f***. I might have had something... Uh, it was a short one, though. Yeah, we, we missed it because it was a short... Supreme Court of Canada decision, but holy f this yeah. is awful. So, like, the, awful. Yeah, in the, in the Waterman appeal, awful. We can provide the links. Awful. So the the main description of the case, because it was such a short decision by the Supreme Court, is you have to go read the the Court of Appeal decisions. Out of Newfoundland each, and Labrador. Each of the three judges wrote separate reasons. Two of them overturned the convictions and substituted acquittals. There was one dissent which sent it to the Supreme Court. Slowly, Supreme Court so everybody understands. So the f***ing Supreme Court went with the dissent. Yes. And so the concerns... Who wrote the majority decision for the Supreme Court of Canada? <laughs> I know. Moldaver? Moldaver. Wow, okay. okay. Glad he's so, retired. So the main ground of appeal, and pretty much the sole ground of appeal, was unreasonable verdict. It's the only ground of appeal. Yeah, so they were saying there is no way that the Crown met their burden of, of uh, proof with the quality, the, the poor quality Just evidence. Just explain what the f***ing evidence yeah. was. So we have a, a male complainant in this case who um, said that he went to therapy and over time, not just with therapy, 
but also having nightmares and dreams and so on, came to realize that he'd been sexually abused by, by the accused uh, as a youth. It was uh, allegations, it was brought forward in 2016. The allegations were from the 70s and 80s, covered a, a large slow. frame of time. Slow. Can we do this in slow-mo? Slow motion. All right. I'll... The allegations are from 70s and what? 80s. One of the most interesting things in slow motion. Um, sir, the, the, the complainant is being confronted with some inconsistencies. You said that there was some sort of, you know, peeing and defecation and so on going on in a room at one point. One of the things that you said to, to the police that this was taking place, and you're no longer saying that. He was like... Yeah, I came to realize, slow motion, I came to realize that that was not reality. It was my dream. So this person is testifying. It's not a f***ing joke. He was still trying to sort out what was a dream and what was reality. That was the quality of the evidence going into this trial. Hmm. And... Just dramatic pause. Hmm. Hmm. So... The memory of this accused resurfaced because of therapy. Is that correct? That was definitely a, a big factor. What was it? One of the best lines that we had in, in one of the cases the judge loved it. You, you said, uh, when your memory's like a chalkboard that can be erased and rewritten at will. No, that was your statement. Okay. I'm giving you literary benefit for that one. Say it again. <laughs> when your memory is like a chalkboard that can be I erased. I just delivered it well. It can be erased and rewritten at will, then you must treat it with suspicion. Right. So it's bullshit. Yeah. And, uh... Because, because it's not a joke. When somebody has no memory, and then many years later, they go to therapy, or they are involved in something else, and they have a recovered memory, with all due respect, never should that be relied upon. Never. 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 So, you know, aside from actual therapists... There, there was a thing, and this is like, I'm just going to criticize this book, you know. Oh, I hate I'm going to name the book, but it's on Wikipedia. I you can so go look it retire. up. You can, you can look it up. There's a, so there's a book that came out after the Satanic Panic. It was called The Courage to Heal. And in the reception of this book, uh, when you look it up on Wikipedia, you'll see a number of actual therapists who specialize in memory. Elizabeth Loftus is one of them. Um, Pendergrass is not mentioned on this thing, but... Loftus is another one who's kind of right up there with them. This book was written by people who actually weren't qualified and, you know, to the degree they should have for what they were saying. Basically said, if there's something wrong in your life, you were probably sexually abused as a child. And then they walk you through writing exercises so that you can unravel what it was that happened to you. And so anything, anything in your life can be a sign of sexual assault. And in fact, an absence of evidence of sexual assault can be evidence of a sexual assault. It's unbelievable. They essentially write a book to convince anybody reading it, you were probably sexually abused. So that's in the, the reception part of the thing. So we have things out there like that. And there's a number. Well, look, we don't have the book. Um, disclaimer. <laughs> we're not commenting on whatever that literary piece of is. And we're not saying that the courts accept this, that type of bullshit. But what the courts do accept in this case is that a person testified that their memory came back through therapy without any examination of the therapy. And it was not incumbent upon the Crown to offer any evidence about what the therapy was and how it elicited 
these memories. Well, right? and, but the reason I brought it up, though, is like, you know, and, and a lot of people have, have enjoyed the book. And I'm not, you know, dissing the book. I'm just saying that there are things. I'm not dissing it either. I just want to ground it where we aside, are. Yeah, it's just the, there's insane some, as there's I some am scientific, there's some scientific you know, issues in, in terms of what we do and don't know about memory. But even without a therapist, people can come to honestly believe that something happened to them. That's credibility. When it never happens. It's credibility but their memories may be incorrect and that's, that's reliability. reliability and so as much as we want to say that there shouldn't be a, a time frame where you're cut off you can no longer make a complaint the reality is is that memory is a very intriguing thing and people don't really properly understand how it works yeah so here's an interesting question okay and it's 10 to 9 p.m mm -hmm. i'm interested in our viewers yes okay so interactively who thinks that recovered memory should be a basis to build a criminal prosecution on? This is not a joke. I would have, I would have tried to ask the question of the, the jury members, do you believe that ritual satanic abuse is a common thing? That would have been one of the questions I would have asked them. <laughs> no, anyway. no, no, but why? You can't ask them anything anymore. No, but that's a great point. Yeah. It's the absurdity of the propositions put forward by a complainant in the course of their overall convoluted evidence based on memory and dreams and recovered memory through a therapist. And then some jury says, no, I accept that you're guilty. And the guy's life is over or a woman's life is over based upon stupidity. Yeah. And our Supreme Court again goes, eh, okay. Well, okay. Just grab a chalkboard eraser. Because <laughs> we have to do more. To because we have to do more for convictions. This is not a joke, ladies and gentlemen. I know. This is where we're going. And, people, and we need to protect evidence much better than this. People who find themselves facing these historic allegations and stuff have to, have to understand how serious it is. They do. And they have to have lawyers who know what the f they're doing. Yeah. I need a break. Good night. Thank you for listening.